Ah, the holidays. For us, getting everyone together often means travel. Planes, trains, long car rides, and unpredictable environments. I remember as a new mom, the thought of traveling to see loved ones with my baby was as overwhelming as it was exciting. But one thing that I've always been able to count on is the leak-free protection from Pampers Swaddlers. This holiday season, pack your presents and pack your Pampers Swaddlers. They now feature a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Swaddlers also has dual leak guard barriers at the legs to help protect where leaks happen most. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured you have superior leak protection while keeping your baby's skin healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with their newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Talk about bringing cheer. Trust to protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Marcela Guerrero spent the first 23 years of her life in Puerto Rico before moving to Madison to earn her PhD in art history from the University of Wisconsin, then Houston, where she worked as a research coordinator at the International Center for the Arts of the Americas Museum of Fine Arts, then LA as a curatorial fellow at the Hammer Museum, and now at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, where she was recently named the Martini Family Curator. Marcella shares what she has learned about the value of that nomadic life and how the decisions she makes as a curator impact not only the exhibits we see, but fundamentally change a museum's collection. Marcela, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you for the invitation. I'm always curious about the process by which one comes to their Latina identity. And I'm particularly interested for you, as someone who grew up in Puerto Rico, what your experience was of realizing how other Americans thought of Puerto Rico. I think I've always been made aware of how illegible maybe I am or, and I'll explain. So I was born in Puerto Rico, Rio Piedras, and lived there for my first 23 years of my life. But my parents are not from Puerto Rico. My dad is from Ecuador and my mom is from Argentina and they met in Mississippi. So yeah, I've always been kind of feeling a little bit of an outsider. This jumble of cultural ethnic references, it's part of me. And so then I, I come to Wisconsin, and even though this is very clear to me, but it's not clear to anyone, and I don't think people knew what to do with myself or with my acts. And I, I saw their faces, like, every time I spoke, and I, you know when you can tell when people are not paying attention to what you're saying? So that was a bit of a culture shock for me, and I'm sure for them as well. 
Did you go to get your master's degree with the intention of becoming a curator? No, I I was going to be a professor. I was going to go to grad school, get my PhD, and then teach at a university because that's what both my parents did. My dad was a professor at the University of Puerto Rico, and then my mom taught at a private university, English. So then what is the moment where it becomes clear to you that professorship is not the path you actually want to be in the museum? Getting into grad school also meant that in order for me to live and pay rent, I had to be a teaching assistant, so a TA during the academic year. But that left me without any income during the summers. So I think I was quite resourceful. I looked for every kind of paid internship that there was. And that exposed me to the Smithsonian Latino Center. I did one with Our Table, which is a great organization still around that supports women and non-binary, up-and-coming young people. And that exposed me to the gallery scene, to commercial galleries, and being exposed to other parts of the art world, of that ecosystem, made me realize what I didn't want. After that commercial gallery experience, I'm like, okay, I'm not, this is not for me. But being, you know, around museums, that was, you know, I felt the excitement. It's like curators are constantly becoming experts on different topics every every year, every two years, depending on the length of the, the exhibitions that they're planning. Whereas academia felt so lonely, and maybe this is sounds reductive, but that's how I felt it. You know, like I want to be accountable to other people, and I want other people to be accountable to me. And that is a dynamic of a museum, of working with so many people in so many different departments. I love that. I think a lot about how in the early part of your career, there's so much emphasis on choosing the field you want to be in and less on questions like, what do you want your day to look like? Do you want to have long-term deadlines or short-term deadlines? Yeah. Those are the types of questions that actually give you clarity around what is it in art history? What is it in this big, broad field that you specifically want to do? Right. Marcella, Looking at the trajectory, your trajectory from Houston to LA to New York, a big part of what this has required of you is a willingness to be a nomad, to go where the next big opportunity is. If I were only looking at your bio, if I were only reading your bio, what would I not know about the trade-offs and the sacrifices that ascension has entailed? Yeah, I think something that the nomadic quality, thank you for picking up on that, because I, I think that also goes back to my parents not telling me, oh, you need to stay close to us, even though I wish I could live in Puerto Rico. And But you don't have to, like, you don't worry about us, you go do your thing. That was kind of an important, unspoken, I think, believe in our family. In the curatorial path, in my case, until very recently, I had to move from museum to museum, from city to city to grow in my career because a promotion was just not going to happen because there are very few spots for people. But what that developed that I think it's such an asset that I think I bring to an institution that perhaps other people don't, especially those who have stayed in their cities and blah, 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 in one city, often where they study, is that I bring big communities of, or a huge network. I have my Smithsonian network. 
I have my Houston and Texas that has grown to also San Antonio. I have my hammer, you know, LA people like it's given me such a broad perspective on the art field on the yeah, the whole ecosystem of art that I'm I'm quite proud of that and also because I, I really want and have a willingness, I think, to expand that and connect other people. I think I, there's a little bit of a matchmaker in me also to like also bring younger people. The, I just recently heard um, an artist, John Quick to see Smith, a Native American artist who talks about the future of me. And it's not only like the future. Sure, younger people are the future, but the future of me, what does that mean? It's so generous also to have that perspective in life. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the LA area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer, M&M's for all fun kind. Ah, the holidays. For us, getting everyone together often means travel. Planes, trains, long car rides, and unpredictable environments. I remember as a new mom, the thought of traveling to see loved ones with my baby was as overwhelming as it was exciting. But the one thing that I have always been able to count on is the leak-free protection from Pampers Swaddlers. This holiday season, pack your presents and pack your Pampers Swaddlers. They now feature a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Swaddlers also has dual leak guard barriers at the legs to help protect where leaks happen most. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping your baby's skin healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8. They now feature designs with their newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Talk about bringing cheer. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. One of the reasons I wanted to speak with you, Marcella, is that you are thinking of museums and art in general through the larger lens of power. Who has power? How is power distributed and how can power be redistributed? I think some of the efforts you're making to diversify boards, efforts to make sure that the predominantly Black and Latino security forces working in museums are properly compensated that is all thinking in a much more holistic way about what it means to center our communities. So here's what I want to know from you. Those are big, bold things. Were you always that bold? Where did that boldness come from? And while each of us, each of our listeners, is not going to necessarily have that specific conversation as a curator where we propose changes that may seem obvious to us but seem big and bold to the people that we're persuading, 
we will have our version of that conversation within our respective industries. What I'd love to learn from you is how you have had those conversations and how you've had them in a way that gets you to where it is you want to go. That's so funny you say that because I feel like I've been so timid most of my life. And it wasn't really until I got to the Whitney that I felt just the mere fact of having someone be willing to listen to my ideas and to what I thought was a game changer. It's like, oh, oh, you're interested in what I think. Okay, so let me tell you, let me share with you. And so I think that I don't know if I would describe it as bold. Okay, Marcella, I'm going to push back. You are still not giving yourself enough credit. Even if the ground was primed, even if people were willing to listen to you, things often get stalled out there. They're like, well, we listened, we did it. But to get from there to the change being realized, that's the real work. Yeah. Sometimes I even think that it comes a little bit out of... (laughs) This is the opposite of what you told me to do. But ignorance of like the script has been written to an extent by other curators, but not at the Whitney really in this particular field, but others have done it. So what are some of those things that I can borrow from, say, someone like Thelma Golden, who did something similar for Black art and Black artists in the 80s and 90s? One of the best advices that she gave me was to work with artists of my generation. And I took that and I catalyzed that into my first exhibition. And this goes back to something we talked previously about the network of people. So I met a bunch of artists and I met a lot of Latinx artists and I continued conversations with them. And so coming to the Whitney and doing the first exhibition, I thought, you know, I'm going to work with artists from my generation, artists who, with whom I've had a relationship from before. I'm going to consciously, for my first show, do something that I don't think has been done anywhere else and that will make uh, an impact because it's coming from the Whitney. And so people look and people pay attention and there's like this magnifying glass over it. So I, I think I tapped into all of that, knowing the power of exposure that, you know, my first show as a first Latina curator would have, and it resonated. I also love the idea, though. Others have done this for their communities, so there's something of a playbook, have the awareness to study that playbook, to ask the people who've done the work how they've done it, and then begin to execute when and where you can. Yeah, exactly. What are the things that I can borrow from that playbook, from that And that will make sense to the Whitney. And as a museum of American art, what exactly am I saying of artists who make work in the U.S. but doesn't look like your stereotypical notion of what that is? So what are these new ideas that have been here? Many of us have seen them. We know them. But the audience that comes to this museum is, you know, has never been exposed to it. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th. 
at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. What did it mean for you to be able to center Puerto Rican voices at an institution like the Whitney? It was definitely my most personal biographical exhibition, and I probably won't do another one quite to this extent, but I felt the need to do it. I wanted to represent, I think, a Puerto Rico, maybe because I'm Puerto Rican, but that is such a particular case study for so many things, for colonialism, but also in this more recent time frame, I guess, climate change and what that represents when those two huge forces collide. And so I see it as a harbinger for other places, for other contexts. So even though there's a specificity about Puerto Rico, I thought it would be a window and an opening for other people to see themselves by looking at Puerto Rican artists. And by that, that also meant Puerto Rican artists who live on the island, but also who live in the diaspora, because the efforts after the hurricane wouldn't have happened if it were not for the diaspora. In the absence of the federal and the local governments, the diaspora was there, like literally the next minute, the next day. The trust also that was involved in getting the artists and talking to the arts, finding the artists and as opposed to my first show where I knew a couple of the artists and I was in fact even like friends with some of the artists. I don't think I knew most of the artists of the 20 artists in my show. So that was a huge long period of getting to know them, building their trust. I approached them as also visitors and viewers of the exhibition. So not just as, you know, like, oh, let me borrow your work and I'm going to put it in the museum. But what do you think of this idea? What do you think of how I'm contextualizing your work? It's going to be in the vicinity of these other artists. And so approaching them as their own viewers of their own work and of this exhibition was really important. So anyway, I'm, that's a long-winded way of saying, yeah, that it was very emotional. I think the day of the press release, I don't know how I held it together because every day before that, I cried every time I had to talk in internal meetings and... It did happen a couple of times in other interviews, but very proud of what we accomplished. Marcella, what did I miss? I think part of being a curator that it perhaps is not that obvious to people because it's more of the outwardly and kind of external face that we present, which is usually through our exhibitions, but there's so much also internally happening the biggest thing would be building the collection. Like I work in an institution that has a collection. So I can see in real time how exhibiting and showing the work of my particular case expertise, Latinx artists, how that impacts the collection. And that building the collection means that we can tell fuller narratives of American art even segments of our collection that are very well known, like abstract expressionism or abstract painting in general, 
adding more voices, that amplifies, that makes it more complex, this narrative. You know, it's not the hero story of Jackson Pollock anymore, but who else, what other artists came after and had the ability to complexify that story by having a work by Freddy Rodriguez, for example. It builds artists' careers. You know, now that we, after No Existe, after the this show about Puerto Rican art that had 20 artists, we've been working on acquiring most, if not all, of the artists. I've been working on this since January. So all of these artists will be represented in the collection of the museum, which adds to their, you know, especially for those emerging artists who haven't had that much exposure, it's almost like currency to have their name say, my work is in the collection of the Whitney. Some artists are getting gallery shows, which could lead to gallery representation, which means that artists don't have to teach and also make their art at the same time that perhaps they can live out of their art. Like it has huge implications. It snowballs. In the best of cases, it's it's a really beautiful story that one can do. And it's the power of being a curator at an institution of this size. Marcella, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Alicia. Thanks for listening. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lantigua and me, Alicia Menendez. Paulina Velasco is our producer. Cochin Tashiro is our lead producer. Trent Lightburn mixed this episode. We love hearing from you. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Slide into our DMs on Instagram or tweet us at Latina to Latina. Check out our merchandise at latinatolatina.com slash shop. And remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, wherever you're listening right now. Every time you share the podcast, every time you leave a review, you help us to grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.